When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm James Richardson. Well, a new season is upon us and The Athletic have big things in store on the audio front. For a start, I'll be here three times a week with the award-winning Totally Football Show featuring the likes of James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Karl Anker and Rory Smith. Mark Chapman will go one better and bring you The Athletic Football Podcast four times a week powered by the cranial reserves of Adam Crafton, David Ornstein, et al. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast have had a brilliant Euros, thank you very much, and they are delighted to be returning for another full season of Women's Super League coverage. There's also eight dedicated club podcasts. There's Adam Hurry's joyous football cliché show. There's Michael Cox's insightful Athletic Football Tactics podcast. There's the Essential Tifo Football Podcast and Whisper It, a revamped football manager show too. Ooh something there for everyone. You can find all of those wherever you get your podcast or listen ad free on the Athletic app. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show. It's brought to you by the Athletic and the Square Ball. Dan Moylan with you from the Square Ball here with Rob Conlon. And of course, Phil returns from his holiday, his brief um, week off. Phil Hay from the Athletic. Hi, Phil. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Did you have a nice time at Euro Disney? Sorry, yes. Disneyland Paris. Yeah, I got pulled up for that on Twitter, didn't I? Yeah, um, get it right. I can't remember when the name changed, but it certainly is Disneyland Paris. Branding is everywhere. And it was great. It was also incredibly expensive. If you ever hit the shop at Disneyland Paris, take your credit card. Again, spoken like a true Scotsman. You can catch up with Phil's writing. I don't think there's much on um, Disneyland Paris, is there, on The Athletic at the minute? No, much no. as everybody would have wanted to read about that, for sure. Just sticking to the football. You can read all that stuff on Leeds United, uh, loads of stuff about football and sport around the world theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod, pound a month for six months. And let's start with a big announcement. The sun is shining. The football is back. I was listening to Mariah Carey in the car on the way over. We're all in a Christmas, good... Christmas song. No, not the Christmassy one. Um, we're all in a good mood because we're going twice a week. Uh, Monday and Friday, we're going to be bringing you a show, the Phil Hayes show. Monday, we're going to be reacting to the weekend's game and get Phil's take on the big talking points. Friday, this show, the usual show, we'll be getting your thoughts from Jesse Marsh's press conferences previewing the upcoming matches and we'll go deeper on loads of Leeds United topics as well. Double dose of Phil Hay, twice weekly, starting Monday after Wolves. I'm looking forward to it. Um, you might not be, but um, yes, it will be twice a week and a treat to have Rob Conlon with us today as well. Brings a bit of sex appeal, don't you think, Rob? <laughs> I, I, don't want, I don't want to insult Michael and his cleaning products, but um, does the rugged look far better than me and you, I would say? Well, I was just thinking that the uh, the first week of the season is a time for optimism, isn't it? So we couldn't have had Michael here. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, in part two, then, we're going to get into the weeds a bit about your chat with Andrea Ratrazzani that happened on Wednesday. Um, that is live on The Athletic from Friday morning. Um, this one is timed to be released around the same time as that. There's a full podcast as well, which we'll get into. We'll get into all that in part two. Yes. First, then, let, let's do the press conference. Um, you've just come straight from Thorpe Arch. People have seen the the contents of the press conference floating around on socials. They might have watched the video. Uh, what do you take from it then? Where are we? Every summer when I go to the first pre-season press conference, for some reason, you have it in your bones that it's going to be lively and it's going to be everybody bouncing about. And they can actually be fairly low-key, which this was not in a bad way at all, I don't think. There were just no wild projections of how it's going to go this season. There were no real developments with transfers. The injury news was was as we expected it. But without touching too much on the, the Radrazani interview yet, he seemed very confident when we spoke to him on Wednesday about how this season is going to go. Almost uber confident, not in the sense of saying we're going to qualify for Europe or we're definitely going to be top half or this, that, that and the other, but very certain that they're not going to get sucked into a relegation battle again. He was saying he was looking for 10th to 14th place. Marsh didn't go into specifics, but I think you can see in his body language that he's happy with the players that they've signed. He's happy with the way that the players they've signed fit into the system uh, that he's trying to to implement. And I asked him during the press conference, have you got a stronger 11 now than you did at the end of last season? And and it would be easy to say yes on the basis of numbers. You know, they've, they've lost two 
they've signed five first team ready players I would say I know they've got um, Jabby and um, Sonny Perkins as well but in terms of players of first team experience you're talking about five but you've lost Rafinha and Phillips and, and his attitude was that yes we do have a stronger team because in his world there's more clarity in the way we play and I think that is because the players that he's got probably fit more into the system that he's trying to go with He was quite evasive on transfers wasn't he he didn't really want to get into that any slight concerns there with either of you about them? It almost feels like they're talking down the possibility of transfers, doesn't it? And, and it feels to me like, I don't know if you agree, that work cannot be finished yet, surely. Well, I think we got more clarity from Rajazani than we did from Marsh, which stands to reason, given that he's, he's chairman of the club. He said that this summer there were six targets that they were going for, six specific targets, of which they've got five. Counting out, obviously, Jabby and Perkins, if we class them as under 21, six first-team players... Um, so they've got Rocker, they've got Adams, um, they've got Sinistera, they've got Christensen, they've got Aronson. Those were five of the six they were going for. Quite clearly, and Radrazani made no secret of this, number six was Charles de Ketela. And he said to us that they had a deal agreed with Bruges for 40 million euros for him, that it was a 50-50 call between Milan and Leeds. And, and clearly he's gone to Milan and, and has signed for Milan, but gave the impression that it was in the balance for a while and it was possible. He, he admitted that he, he feels with hindsight that he should have gone to Belgium or Leeds should have gone to Belgium to try and wrap that up sooner. He thinks if they'd gone a little bit earlier while Milan and his words were sleeping, they could well have got that done, but they were prepared to pay that because of how highly they rated De Ketela. When it came to asking him about other strikers, because I'm still very much in the camp that says that they need another forward and a left back, although we can discuss that separately, he said they were still active on that front, they were still looking, but far more consideration would be given to how signing anybody else would impact on Gelhart's minutes, whether or not they could get somebody who would be as worth spending the money on as De Ketela. Essentially, analysing their options, I think, and, and biding the time a little bit. I think it's a position they've, they've got to fill. I think it's somebody they've, they've got to go for. But it, came, it became pretty apparent, I thought, during that chat, that they were massively sold on De Ketela because it was De Ketela. In terms of the other options they've been looking at, and we know about um, Calamendu at PSG and, and Terry at, at Rennes and, and others, they still seem to be biding their time. Because a cynic would say that this is a club that doesn't really have its affairs in order or is not willing to spend the money. That's what the, the cynics on social media will say. The counter-argument to that would be that don't spend money for spending's sake. But I don't want that to be seen as me saying... I think they'd be better off just sitting still. Don't get me wrong, if there is nothing out there that's of any decent quality, then it's it's hardly worth it. But I don't think you can look at the market and say that that's the case. You know, there are quite clearly very, very good forwards out there in Europe. And given that they were prepared to put up 40 million euros for Charles de Ketela, there clearly is the scope to sign somebody extremely good and, and somebody very, very decent who could supplement the forward line. And the point we made to Radrazani in in the interview was that this was one of the issues last season. One of the prime issues was that they, they were getting caught short, short of resources in key positions and it was quite clearly costing them. You know, they, they were without players that they needed at, at crucial times and, and part of the plan this summer was definitely to deepen the size of the squad, which I think in terms of experienced players, they definitely have. You know, you, you can't really argue that. But it feels as if there are still a couple of boxes to tick. Furpo is going to be back sooner than they expected. Marsh said today that he had a scan, um, he will probably be available in two to three weeks. So I think having thought that it would be a full eight for him, it's going to be slightly shorter. But even still, I'm not sold on strike there at all. I think Hilda is, is still pretty unproven, you know, as, as Premier League player to say the least. So it, it just seems to me that it would mitigate problems and it would cover the back in a sensible way to, to do, you know, I'm not saying an expensive left back, I don't think that necessarily makes sense, but certainly to get a forward in as well. Mash did say that there's going to be an incoming next week or suggested that there might be anyway. Is there any sign of who that may, may be or at least what role that may be in? It was made to sound like a backup goalkeeper. They've been looking and talking about second choice keeper all summer, you know, whether they will stick with class and as Melee's second choice. But there has been a discussion, as we've talked about many times, about whether actually they need somebody a bit more proven and a bit more experienced behind Melier. Marsh essentially said today, Yes, we do. Um, we're in, we're um, in, in the process of, of trying to sort that out and, and kind of hinted that, that we might be looking at somebody coming in next um, next week, but that will be backup. You know, that will be covered. Millie is, is going to be first choice um, this season. So in terms of left-backs and strikers, it doesn't sound like since we spoke to Marsh um, on Sunday um, after the Cagliari game that there's been much progress. And certainly from speaking to Radrazani 
on Wednesday. Um, it's still kind of um, holding pattern at the moment. On the keepers, I mean, we've seen from the press conference, uh, Van der Hervel, who's been in the accident in the Netherlands, so I obviously wish him a speedy recovery. It sounds pretty serious to that. That, taken with Klaassen having a knock this week, you don't need more of a warning, do you, to get this one done? Klaassen is fit, Marsh said. He, he will be available for the Wolves game, um, but he has an ankle problem, which I think he suffered last weekend. Leeds played um, Manchester City on the Saturday behind closed doors game, uh, and then Cowley on the Sunday. And the idea of that was basically that all kind of 2021, 20, 22 players could get a full 90 minutes before the Wolves game this weekend. The Van der Heuvel stuff is is nasty, actually. he um, It was him and a few other um, Dutch youth internationals involved in a, a car accident earlier this summer. He's damaged vertebrae in his neck, and this is far less a, a football issue than a, a health issue. Marsh was saying, you know, we, we were far more concerned for, for his well-being than we were, you know, the question of when's he going to be back or is he going to be able to play? Van der Heuvel, I'm sure, will be worried about that himself. But yeah, no, not not good that at all. So I, I'm not quite sure when he'll be back in the mix. Not that we'd have expected him to play this season, but he has been around the goalkeepers, you know, for the last year or so. You have seen a lot of him. But yeah, no, the the, the goalkeeping front, I think, is one where to, to take the Wolves game away last season when Melier got injured in that, that felt like basically the, the last player waiting to pick up a problem of some sort. Everybody else seemed to have been injured at some stage. And it was that question immediately. And I know Klassen was good coming off the bench, but that question immediately of, if you lost Melier, is there anybody else here who is actually ready to play a streak of games in the Premier League? Just with regards to the transfers, is there anything you've heard from either Radrazani or Marsh today that makes you think they're in danger of falling into the same trap again regards to not bolstering the squad? You said just before then that Radrazani is saying that they're not going to do that. They recognise the problems. Is it just the case that they're biding their time or is there a real danger at all, do you think, that they might opt to not add to the squad, for example? Well, his quotes were quite explicit when he said, if we're not 100% convinced about what we've got out there or the options we've got, then we won't do it. You know, we we, we won't move. But the fact that they had that offer on the table for Charles de Ketelaar at that level, I mean, that would have been a, a club record transfer, that. that would have broken the fee paid for Rodrigo, tells you that the money was there. I mean, again, um, to go back to other transfers that have happened in the past where it's, there's kind of been that question mark over are Leeds actually serious about this? If if Club Bruges had said to them or if De Ketelaar had said to them, okay, let's do it, they'd have had to have paid the money. Otherwise, you know, the bluff would have been called in an incredibly embarrassing way. So presumably the cash was there ready to do it, which means that if another good option comes up, they should be in the, in the same position. But no, if you read the quotes and if you listen to Radrazani's podcast, he is he is kind of saying, look, it depends what it is and, and at what level. Because what concerns me with it is that we sat in here with Victor Orta last summer when you were off and he told us they have plans in place for every position. They'll have two or three options. doesn't strike me as that. This strikes me as they've got a real thing for the Ketelaar and there is no immediate plan B in place. They're now going away and having to think about it. I don't think it's a case of no plan B in place. They, they have looked at Calamendu a lot through the summer and, and the Terry link at Wren is legitimate. But it was, I think, the Radrazani chat open my eyes to just how keen they've been on De Ketelaar. I mean, they hadn't made a huge secret of that. They'd, they'd been saying he he was the one, but clearly somebody that they were absolutely ready to push the boat out on. And and it makes me quite interested to watch him over the next three or four years to see how good he's going to get and, and what sort of talent they would have been landing. Because that's a lot of money. You know, it's a, it is a big fee. And as I say, it would have been a, a record for Leeds. But it was made to sound as if, whereas they were, you know, totally, totally convinced about De Ketelaar, Maybe not so much on the others that they've looked at, but that how, how convinced do you need to be, though? That's what I'm asking. Like, is, is there not a, well, a point at which you say this is just ultra, ultra perfectionism? And I, I'm not suggesting in any way we should just sign anybody, but that there are surely players out there. This is what they're paid to do. I don't think that's a question <laughs> you can really ask me because I'm in the camp that thinks, yeah, they do need somebody. They do need somebody, and I, and I wouldn't be in any way persuaded by the argument that there just wasn't anything we could find. There always comes the, the debate about cost and price and what level you go to. But yeah, I think they need a striker. I do. I think they need another forward, not somebody to start ahead of Bamford. And Mars said today, you know, it will be minutes for Bamford. Without a doubt, he will play a lot this season. But bitten, once bitten by last season and the fact that there were gaps in the squad and it did cost them, you, you, I don't want to see that again, definitely. I mean, from a fan's perspective, Rob, surely we know, we can see as fans that the Ketelaar wasn't happening for a good two weeks. It was always intention to his intention to go to Milan if he could make that deal happen. And it looked like with the way it unfolded, that was going to happen in the end anyway. I, I struggle to understand why they've not 
um, made more active moves for somebody else in the meantime. It was, um, yeah, it was telling when Marsh was discussing discussing the centre forward options today, and obviously mentioned Joe Gelhart, which I absolutely want to see more of him, and I think a new contract as well suggests kind of a higher status in the squad. But then beyond that, he was talking about Dan James up front and Rodrigo up front. And we've seen that. And, last and Strauch on the left didn't even mention that. Yeah. Le- and I, I know he's just trying to talk up the players that are in the squad, but actually you, you need to be aware of the other way that that's going to be read. Left back, I find um, more baffling than centre forward, to be honest, because there's one guy there and he's been incredibly unconvincing and he's injured and going into a season not fit, which I think the one kind of hope we had this season was, well, if he can have a pre season, cool. Let's see if he can get fit and be durable and. Um, become more aligned with how the manager is wanting him to play but there's still quest- massive question marks over that and I, I was wondering what you think Phil like, I, is the club's attitude to left back kind of a bit strange that the line is constantly we don't want anyone to replace Verpo if anything we want to back up to them are they kind of restricting themselves in that sense well what about well, well, yeah, just, to, just to supplement that question that Rob's asking you there Phil what about direct competition for him? Don't you frame it as that in the yeah, same way that I, I, in the same way that we're framing that as right? That's the right back option, isn't it? I think you could, but even at the very least, having a left back in the under twenty ones who looks like you could turn to if you you needed to. I, I know they talk about Hilda playing at left back, and I remember him playing there and actually playing well down away at West Ham. But I think of Hilda more as a, a central defender, um, and and the likelihood that that is going to be his position, and it has bounced certainly this summer from. No plans at all to get a left back for most of it, up until the point where Philpo got injured. And then Marsh was quoted as saying, you know, that is something we're looking at. The club started to look at options. I don't, it seems as if Philpo recovering more quickly has changed that again. But as I said earlier, I don't look at Strike. I look at Strike as somebody who could have good games there, but I don't look at him as somebody that as a natural go to to fill in on the left side of defence. I think you saw again against Calgary that. The type of player he is, and this is no criticism of him, because look at his height and his size and everything else. You know, he's, he's got the physique of a centre back, not the, the sort of physique for the mobility that a, a wing back or a full back needs. I think, on, actually, on both sides of the pitch, you can see in this team tactically, there is a risk of Leeds being exploited there. It's been there right the way through the games. And that's not to say there haven't been good things in the games, too. But, they, you know, if you're looking for a kind of pronounced weakness at the moment in the structure, that would seem to be it. So, yeah, they, they are going to go with Furpo as first choice and, and they've made that made that very clear but I would feel far more comfortable thinking that, that there was somebody there who like you say could compete with him or certainly be there as I guess simple and straightforward backup if needed It might um, it might just be the paranoia of being a fan and how ravaged we've been by injuries these last two seasons but there was a moment against Calgary where Robin Cock went down injured and with Pascal Strzok playing left back and Liam Cooper being injured I was looking at the defence thinking God, wait, what do we do if we get another injury here? And you again, you, you're saying, well, I suppose Strout moves to centre-back or you bring Yelder on there or Yelder comes on at left-back. But then again, it suddenly looked very thin. You, you, and you're getting into the, the square pegs and round holes territory mm. stuff again, aren't you? You're not a million miles away from that. Yeah, but I do agree with that. There, there is, I mean, the, the injury list is not severe in the sense of time, um, time-wise, um, but it is quite long. Cooper is not going to play this weekend. Sinistera is basically back training. Cooper is doing work out on the grass, but Sinistera won't be available either. Forshaw, Ailing, both recovering still from injuries. Fulpo too. And obviously Dan James is still banned from the, the red card against Chelsea carrying over into this season. I saw Dallas today. He's off crutches, um, but clearly, you know, he's he's got a long way to go um, before he, he's over his femur injury. Massive, lovely big scar on, on his leg. But, you know, off crutches, so kind of headed in the right direction. But, yeah, it, it's not as if they're going into the season with a full complement of players. Quite quite the opposite at the moment. Yeah, my, my concern is that it's based around the evidence of, of what we've seen with our own eyes, such as saying that nothing against Furpo at all. I really want him to come good and he looks good sometimes going forward. But all the times I've seen him in defence, he scares the life out of me. And moreover, he never seems to be fit for any length of time. So we, we know those two things to be true. And, and the crowd can sense it as well. The crowd at Ellen Road is not stupid. It understands what it sees like, you know, it's the group, like, um, not group thing, but like the hive mind, isn't it? Everyone kind of formulates an opinion. It's the same with like Rodrigo. and, and I was Dan. just going to say, that, Rodrigo that, falls into yeah, the same we're, category. We're still that, waiting yeah. to see what Rodrigo can produce. So are we now relying on him suddenly to come good as, a, as an option at number nine? There's no evidence to suggest that he can do that for any sustained period. Same with Dan James up front. He's, you know, Marsh is saying that Dan James can play up front. He can't, can he? Not, not to any particularly great standard or for any prolonged period of time. And he said himself, he doesn't like it. 
Well, going back to what I said about the press conference, you know, and it being quite low key and sort of, you know, no real sort of tub thumping in it, which I, I didn't expect. It feels to me, I guess I get the sense that all of us, and perhaps Marsh included, are going into this season just not quite sure of what's coming. I don't really have a gut feeling, I have to be honest, for how this is going to go. I can see an argument for the players fitting the system that Marsh wants to play and it knitting together in a way that keeps Leeds out of trouble. I can see an argument for them being short where they need more and for it being tough and difficult again. I almost feel like if someone said to me, how's this season going to go? I'd like to answer that in two or three weeks, three or four weeks, with the benefit of seeing how it goes against other competitive Premier League teams as opposed to Calgary, who... They're not miles behind Leeds when it comes to the the schedule. The season starts in Italy um, next weekend, but they didn't look great. And obviously there were a massive number of changes at, at halftime, at which, gate the, at which point the, the floodgates opened. I did think Leeds played well, though. You know, I, I did think that, that technically and, and some of their attack, attacking play was, was good. And you could, again, see what the plan was. You could see what they, they were trying to do. But, I mean, do you two have a... Do you have a gut feeling for how this is going? Do you, if you were predicting where Leeds were going to finish? Well, we, we did a survey among like our, our subscribers, our members for the square ball. And in that, the average finish, finishing prediction was 14th. And I tend to lean towards that. I think it'll be about what Rajasani thinks, probably about 10th to 14th. And I, you know, you'd take that, wouldn't you now? I mean, it'll be horrible at stages during the season if that's what we're going to be. Because you look at the number of games that you have to lose in order to finish about 10th to 14th. And it's quite a lot, isn't it? It's going to be a similar amount to last season. It is, unless you're drawing a massive bundle, yeah, and, yeah. you know, and um, but nobody tends to get huge enjoyment out of that either. I think that's probably my thought towards the, the lower end of 10th to 14th um, would be about right. But I came away from Ellen Road on, on Sunday thinking the players are clearly being coached. You have to say when you look at the pressing and the counter-pressing and the, the structure of the team and what they're doing, they have been coached and it has clearly been drilled into them. So therefore, the the only question is, is it going to click? And if it does click, will they have the, enough quality in various positions to to do what they need to do and to get themselves to the right position in the league? And it's really hard to know. There are a lot of unknown quantities in this. You know, we, we saw Marsh last season and I don't think there was much to write home from uh, about his 12 games. But then if you consider the circumstances, was there ever going to be? You know, it was it was in disarray to a large degree and it was a difficult situation to pick up. But even so... You know, what to expect from him, what to expect from a raft of signings who none of us have ever seen a, a great deal of and certainly haven't seen anything of in the Premier League. So you don't even have that um, that reference point to fall back on. It's intriguing because, quite honestly, it's very difficult to call. This season, following your team on The Athletic is better than ever. Our brand new match blogs give you real-time updates so you'll get all the stats you need to know as they happen, from XG to XA, from progressive carries to PPDA and so much more. You'll now get the same level of unrivaled insight from The Athletic during the 90 minutes as before and after kickoff. The Athletic's match blogs are the essential companion for everything you need to follow the game. See for yourself on The Athletic app and at theathletic.com. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We'll preview Wolves in part three, chat about some of the other stuff as well that's happened at Ellen Roads uh, across the last seven days including um, Lewis Bate, Matthias Click. We'll look at the new assistant manager, Marich. Um, first, let's talk about your chat with Andrea Ratvazani, which is available now to read on The Athletic. And there is an accompanying podcast as well where you can get the, the full thing. Um, there is also video as well if you want to look on YouTube and other places. All over um, the place. Yes. You will, you will find yes. it. Um, and it was a three-way as well. It was yep. um, Ratvazani, it was myself and David Ornstein. The mighty Orny. Did you gang up on, on Ratvazani? Was, uh, was it taken in the right way? He... Um, he did basically say, look, because the interesting thing about it was that neither he nor anybody at Leeds has spoken at length about last season or about the sacking of Bielsa. We had the statement after um, the decision was made, which I think very much pointed to the fact in a couple of sentences that Leeds thought they were going down, you know, and, and that was why they, they had done it. 
And then we had a little bit in Angus Kinnear's programme notes, and I know you've got him on the, the Square Ball show coming up as well. Yeah, recorded um, on Friday morning. Yes, Friday yeah, so, uh, you know, that absolutely be worth listening to as well. But there's a big difference between, you know, a kind of short number of sentences here and there, and actually concerted discussion about what went on and, and why that decision was taken. And the fact that, I think more than anything, that it seemed to swing from, at the end of January, everybody saying, we are in okay shape, we will stay up, we're pretty sure it will be fine, to be also being gone by the end of, of February. And Rajasani was saying, that, you know, rather than kind of giving a week-to-week or regular running commentary, he prefers to do it in one big hit, you know, where he can answer anything. But he did say to us, I will answer, and obviously like this would have been a, a requirement anyway, but I will answer anything, you know, there's no topic off limits. You ask me what you what you want to ask or what you think people might want, want asked of, of me. It's a, it's a great opportunity, in my view, to uh, take some time to explain uh, about the club decision, the strategy, looking a little bit about the past, but also uh, talk about today, the present, the season uh, that's starting this weekend, and also a little bit about the vision, the future of the club. And uh, I thank you and your platform for giving me the opportunity to spread our message and clear uh, to the many questions that over the year, the past year, uh, the fans uh, as in their mind. So we got into Bielsa. Clearly, that was the first place to start, I thought. I didn't think there was, there was anything else to, to chat about before that. And it was quite revealing to get the timeline of, of what was actually happening in Radrazani's head. He said that, and we, we did write this at the time, but he said that the Aston Villa game, the 3 0 draw at Villa Park, um, second week of February, was the game at which the, the doubts started to, um, started to grow. Leeds going from 1 0 up to 3 0 down, drawing 3 0. He said that, you know, the, the media reports about the game were quite positive, um, quite positive about Leeds fighting back to get a point. But he came away really worried about the fact that Villa had scored three times in, in 13 minutes and it seemed to be so easy to get through Leeds and to get through the defence. And it was basically the planting of the seed, as he said, to that feeling of this isn't working, this is broken. Um, we did ask him directly, did you think you were going down if you didn't sack him? He said yes. He said that he was... 100% convinced about sacking him after the Man United game, the 4-2 defeat at Ellen Road. And he thought about doing it straight away, but he chatted to the board and the board said, why don't we give it two games, wait until you know Liverpool's passed, Tottenham's passed. But I think there was no way back after that Man United game from, again, 2-0 to 2-all, but then losing the game 4-2 towards the end of it. It was just a loss of faith and it was a loss of confidence. And I thought, it's, I, I did think that there were hints in it about, you know, the the possibility and, and the fact I think when you look back that Bielsa with a squad that was still laden with players who'd played so much football under him and had been promoted with him had had additions to it but hadn't been massively refreshed looking at it now that perhaps they did push it too far you know perhaps they did push it too far he said that he and Bielsa spoke last summer they kind of said and, and both knew that there was going to come a point where either they had to replace him all they had to replace the whole squad because the squad wasn't going to be able to keep going and going and going again and so again. Be- and again. So Bielsa acknowledged that? Bielsa acknowledged. He basically said, and this is contradictory because yeah. let's be honest, Bielsa has not said anything you know, about Leeds apart from that little bit in the um, the pitch for the Athletic Bilbao job where he said, you know, people spoke about the injuries, but actually here, here's the here's the data. Radazani said that when they spoke last summer, Bielsa acknowledged himself that because of the way he pushed players and because of the intensity of the regime and the way he is as a coach that it couldn't last forever um, either without changes on one front or the other you know squad manager or whatever else and actually you know again it was something I think we had to ask was at the point where you were starting to think about sacking him early in the season or even before that you know at the point where you still thought you'd be okay that season would you have replaced him in the summer and Radrazani said yes even before you know the decision had been taken. Right, we need to do it now. Which was in which was in Kinnear's program notes as well, wasn't it? Which yeah. is which is something I'm going to ask him about on on Friday as well, because in those program notes he wrote like it was something that we should have all known, and we didn't know that was new information to us at the time, and it felt like it was it was almost reverse engineering the outcome. You know, like the circumstances that led up to that outcome, and I think that's why fans got really put out by that at that time. And but it was very hard for me too. I mean, I mean, a, a man which I, I share one of the best days of my life and the best experience in my life and um, a project so unique, so different, so special, uh, like Leeds United in, in, back in the Premier League. So it was very difficult as well for me. 
Yeah, I think you could have assumed that people might be starting to second guess that yes, perhaps it would be go our separate ways in in the summer. I remember writing in February after the Everton game saying it feels very different this year. The previous three seasons with Bielsa, every time the contract was up at the end of the the, the season in the summer, you thought, well, there's no way they're going to move on from him. You know, if he decides to go, then that's totally different. But it would be absolutely ludicrous for them to to say, right, enough's enough. Let's um, let's get somebody else. This time round, even before the, the sacking came about, it felt as if there would have to have been far more serious discussions about, look, where do we go from here and how do we change it? Because, you know, they, they were running so close to relegation and what had been an exponential rise for three years was suddenly dipping towards real, real trouble in the league. But no, it, it was never expressly said at any stage, you know, he will be going in the summer, not at all. But it's not a secret either that they had been looking at Marsh for a long, long time. Radrazani said, you know, the previous summer, had Marsh not gone to Leipzig and, you know, had Bielsa gone, had decided, no, actually, do you know what, I don't want to manage in the Premier League or whatever else, Marsh would probably have been the pick then. And and evidently Marsh would have been the pick this summer as well, had Bielsa made it to, to the end of the season. But you just get the feeling of something that was reaching the end of the line and was decaying and, and coming apart. And And essentially, as always happens at football clubs, once your boardroom lose faith in your head coach, it's only going to end one way. The system, the one-to-one marker and uh, and everything that was asked to the player was not working, but also was putting themselves in a, almost in a, in a situation to be humiliated because I remember some games where it was so easy to score against us. And uh, I, I didn't feel any more comfortable for the players, for the fans, for the club. And, um, and uh, at the end, uh, I realised that Marcelo had only one way, he could not compromise with his way. So uh, at the end, this would, could risk uh, uh, to bring a relegation uh, to the club. So I, I could not afford to, to take that risk. It feels like that loss of faith came quite quickly, though, because I'm just looking down the results around that period of time. So in the new year, we, we come off the back of the three pre-Christmas defeats, Chelsea, Man City and Arsenal. Then there was the, the postponement for, for COVID, wasn't there, over, yes. over Christmas? But then it was beating Burnley. Then we won at West Ham away, which was kind of classic Bielsa, wasn't it, that mm-hmm. game? Then it was the defeat to Newcastle at home, which we should have won. We should have had that game sewn up. Like, again, that was classic Bielsa in a way, wasn't it? A game where we had loads of chances and just didn't take them and ended up losing. And then that Villa away game is the one that followed that, the 3-3, which then led into the, the six defeats on the bounce and Bielsa got fired after the fourth one, which is Spurs. We had Everton, Man United, Liverpool... And then Spurs. It's just it's just interesting knowing the time and the, and the speed yeah, at which it seems to be that. I, I would I would be careful though of thinking of it as black and white in the sense that one minute everything was rosy, the next minute everything was crisis. It, it was far more of a descent through grey in the sense that everybody could see that Leeds were not playing as well as they had done previously. The results were not great. They were in that area of the table where I certainly felt you know right up until that point that they they were probably far enough out of it to to be okay but still close enough to get sucked in. If it all went wrong, there were the issues with you know injuries, there was a squad size, there was everything else. It was not a happy place last season, really at, at any stage. It didn't feel like it. It didn't feel like a club in crisis either for a lot of it. It just didn't have that same buoyancy and um, I guess same electricity that, that it had previously in, in those three years. But without a doubt, it happened very quickly in February. I think that the the penny dropping for Radrazani, you know, as he saw it, what the, the conclusion he came to, I think did arrive pretty rapidly on that night at Villa. There was obviously something about that game at Villa, those 30 minutes that made him think, I'm going to have to change this, otherwise we're going down. Where else do you think responsibility lay within the club for the, the fact that it was such a hard season and that it was so close to relegation? Uh, mainly for, to me and Marcelo Biesa to don't change uh, in time because at the end uh, he, we had this conversation in the summer. Uh, we knew, both of us, we knew that either we should change all the players or we should change him. And he was very open to admit that and to say that. Presumably as well, did Marsh leaving Leipzig play kind of a, a role in their decision making? Because if he is the guy that they have been, I think Arthur was saying that he'd, he'd been chatting to him for two years and like you say, if, if Bielsa had gone the previous summer, he'd have been the guy. Did him suddenly, being without a job, suddenly uh, kind of play a part in their decision-making as well? And just before you answer that, Phil, the reaction to this, I know what it's going to be among fans, is that they've done dirty on Bielsa here. Is That's how fans are going to feel. Well, to, we have touched on this before. If you have a coach who's on a year-to-year contract, what do you do? 
Well, you're always kind of future planning, I guess. You, aren't you? Ca- you yeah. kind of are. So without knowing the extent of the conversations with Marsh, that, that is difficult to know, but it's a really good question that Rob asks. And yes, it did make it easier because Marsh was there to a point, even though Marsh has said, you know, my initial feeling was I should say no to this and, and I wanted Bielsa to see the season out and I wanted him to keep them up and, and everything else. It's far easier to make that decision if you do have somebody that you know or are confident you can go to and say, look, can you pick this up on Monday afternoon? You know, we need you here Sunday night. You need to start on on Monday. And Marsh had actually been sacked two or three months before. You know, it wasn't as if he'd just come out of Leipzig, you know, a few weeks earlier. But even so, yeah, I think had there not been somebody there ready waiting, it would have been a far more difficult decision to take. I mean, Rajasani sort of said, his quote was, in the end, I was kind of in that position where I had to decide, do I die with Bielsa, i.e. get relegated, or do I die with somebody else, you know, risk getting relegated with somebody else? And he did say it was incredibly risky to do because there was no guarantee that it was going to work. And I still think that Leeds can count themselves pretty fortunate not to have gone down last season. But his appreciation of Marsh towards the end of last season was, he said, in, in his leadership of the dressing room. And, and I think that's probably a fair comment, actually. Even though the football wasn't great, even though tactically it didn't particularly work, it didn't fall apart in terms of the players and the coaching staff you know, being fairly unified and, and sticking together through it. It wasn't as if it broke down into masses of, of infighting and everything else. But we did ask you know, Radrazani, because he said the players looked tired, they looked mentally tired more than, more than physically. So we asked him, well, you know, were they consulted? Did they, did they want the change? And he said, well, actually, no, they, they were with him right to the end, although he, he, he felt that was as much because of the journey they'd been through because of how much they owed him and, and everything else. But he did think that he, he saw a bit, of a, a bit of a squad refreshed when Marsh came in on the Monday. He came in the most difficult way, in the most difficult possible way to, to come after Marcelo, a man, a legend for this club in a difficult situation on the football. So I'm very grateful and uh, I love the man. I think this year we'll have time to show me he's a great coach, but the man has already got me completely. One of the things they said after they sacked Bielsa was there would be a permanent tribute and now we, we now know what that is going to look like. So. They want to name the training ground after him. Yeah, they've written to him, Radrazani said, to ask his permission to do it. There was talk and actually there was a plan for a more of a permanent tribute outside Ellen Road itself, but that is what they, they're doing um, or they're going to try and do, provided that he's happy for them them to do it. I don't know what his response to that will be, but um, they, they have written to him to ask if they can they can do that, which I think would be would be a nice touch, wouldn't it? Do you think that'd be fitting, Rob? I mean, I feel like he's he's more likely himself to say, can you name it after like a cleaner or a, something that works in the kitchen or something? But... In the same way as when they were trying to name um, the stadium after him at, at News, I think he was a bit like, what? I mean, but... There is actually a genuine argument for saying it should be named after Howard Wilkinson because it was his no. brainchild, isn't it? And interestingly, somebody got in touch with me today to say, you know, um, somebody at, at our place who'd read the, the article and, and was saying, you know, there isn't a tribute to Wilkinson really. And, and it was very much his brainchild. I think... But he also falls into the category of people who, if you named the training ground after him, would be 100% fair enough, if you know what I mean. There's a, there, yeah. there is a small collection of people at Leeds. Eddie Gray is another. You know, Ed, we did a, a piece on the art, uh, an article on The Athletic a while back. Who needs a statue at your club? Um, who's the, the you know, first in line for it? And it is Eddie, really, I think. Um, I, don't, I don't think anybody beats him, him to that, given his, his service over the years. But I think if you were naming the, um, the training ground after... Bielsa. It would be hard to it would be hard to, to describe that as excessive, but I totally take the argument about Wilkinson because you're right. You know that was his baby. I think um, you can, you can always argue over who what should be named after who and things like that. I think the the thing that really matters with Bielsa is that there are murals of him in the city and not just one as well. Yeah. There are loads of them, and I think that's a lot more meaningful than whatever the club do. To be honest, I think for him as well, it, it would matter more the kind of emotional impact and that sort of intangible thing about what his football did for people and what it meant for people would, would matter more to him I think than, than lasting than lasting mementos or, or lasting acknowledgement in you know as in the, the training ground being named after him but at the same time I would, I would think he'd be quite touched if they did that it would it'd be lovely it'd be a nice move but we do need to um, commemorate Wilkinson properly because it almost feels like that's been a little bit forgotten now like recent history is front of mind there's plenty of stuff now happening for the Reavy team what about that team as well yeah yeah, absolutely. I always think the um, the mural as you come in the underpass um, on, on Lowfields Road is about the best thing roundabout for them. And yeah, you're right about Wilkinson. That there is nothing kind of fitting um, fitting tribute to, to what he did over the, the period when he was manager. And without being grim about it, he's not a young man anymore. It'd be nice to do it while he's still here. 
um, so he can come and enjoy and be celebrated for, for the achievements that he, he had at Ellen Road. I wonder what people think about that, though. You know, if, if there's the proposal to make a statue of you or to name this after you or, or that after you, whether you, if, when, you, when you're alive, whether you find that a bit uncomfortable, a, a bit awkward, whether those tributes are a bit left for people after they've, they've left us, it's, it's hard to say. But I, I think in all the things they could have done for Bielsa, naming the training ground after him doesn't seem like a bad one to me. And back to the Radrazani chat, we're not selling Harrison, no way. Jack is very important. Uh, he has impacted even the same level of Rafinha on, on, on stats. Uh, there's no way Jeff stays here. Yeah, no, there, there is the ongoing link to Newcastle, but we kind of wrote about this a couple of weeks ago and said it was not in the plan to, to sell him Newcastle. We're a long way off paying what leads with, with value at Matt. So he said, no, absolutely not. In terms of outgoings, then Rafinha sold to fund signings. Philip's different though. Yes, um, Phillips, he said, was sold because Phillips basically said to him, City room for me, Premier League champions will be playing in the, prim- in the Champions League. I want to go. You know, it's a it's a move I want to take. And I think Radrazani understood that. I think Leeds understood that. I think probably most supporters understand that as well. But there was no disguising the fact that with Rafinha, it was a case of if he goes, we can sign X number of players who across the board should make us better. And Radrazani thinks they are stronger because of the the players who've come in. As I said earlier, he thinks they can finish 10th to 14th this season. That's where he says he's expecting them to be. At the moment, I think there is no no, no need to change. That. And I'm happy. I'm very happy. I I really dream of, to bring this club to, to play in Europe and then I'm happy to leave. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, still have uh, some work to do here. Uh, but to be honest, I, we are very good friends with, uh, with the Niners. They are a, a solid partner. They let me work in peace and uh, they're supportive. And on the 49ers as well, no immediate movement on that one, which I think does need a little bit of clarity now, doesn't it? I think we're all struggling as fans to understand the split of shares and what they're doing and what they actually bring. Still, it's not clear to us, I don't think. And no, it's, it always very much feels to me that the running of the club, you know, your day-to-day running of the club is, is in Radrazani's hands, which I suppose it would be as majority shareholder. But, you know, Kinnear is very much his man. He was appointed when he came in, chief exec, author, um, the same as director of football. The thing this summer is that they haven't needed vast shareholder investment in order to sign players. You know, they've had the money in from Phillips and Rafinha. The money's gone out on the signings they've made so far. Who would have funded the De Kettler, uh, fee is, is obviously a question. I suspect probably would have come from Radrazani, but it might have been a, a split between them. But because there hasn't been the need for mass investment, there hasn't been a, any more transfer of equity. And Radrazani said he doesn't expect any equity to transfer anytime soon either. He gives the impression that he's very happy. Very happy as chairman, very happy to retain um, majority control. But we did say to him that because the 49ers are on 44%, the next time they buy any shares, it is surely going to tip over to them becoming majority equity holder um, and, and him no longer being in a majority position. You know, they would have to purchase a very, very small amount to stay below 50. And I think if they did that, you would even more be asking, why don't you just want to go... But unless Radrazani is stopping you doing that, why don't you want to just go over the top, you know, and have it done? But he, we reported obviously a while back that there is the option that the 49ers have to buy him out, which runs to 2024. And he, he confirmed that in the interview. He said, yeah, no, that, that does exist. All right, because he wasn't happy about that when I was first reported. He wasn't delighted about it. No, it has to be said. <laughs> However, we did say it was... Um, it was accurate, hence why we ran it. I think what concerns me about hearing this about, about the 49ers, it almost feels like they're going hand-to-mouth, transfer-to-transfer, you know, window-to-window, who's going to fund this player? There doesn't seem to be like an overarching strategy, if you know what I mean. It's not like... Because what, what I'm getting at is it feels like somebody needs to come in, potentially, and continue to invest money into it. And that's just my position as a football fan as well. And we, we feel a little bit entitled, don't we? Like, somebody should come in and fund the project that I like watching. I mean, you know, we'd all like Leeds to be self-sustaining, but ultimately what we want more than anything as football fans is someone to come in money. and throw bloody money. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Give me cash. Well, one of the topics that was always going to get discussed in this was the stadium. Um, because when Radrazani speaks about the stadium, he says increasing the size of it and the capacity and the, the commercial potential of it is what will take us up to revenue of about 250, 260, 270 million, at which point you really are in a position to properly compete with all bar, you know, your, your top six, really. You know, everybody else you should be able to, to muscle in on. But I was making the point to him that 
it's not only the commercial side of this, you also have a waiting list of like 20,000 people who are desperate to get in the ground and desperate to come and watch. So, you know, bigger stadium for them is important too. And I think you were asking about this last time I was on. It has gone quiet. You know, there's been very little said about it. So uh, he says that in the process now of of actively courting and he thinks of of being close to moving towards an, an agreement with a financial partner to fund it, he says it's going to cost in excess of £100 million. So they're going to need a lot of money to do it. But they are, they've got drawings, they're meeting with the council, they've done a feasibility review as well. His opinion, and actually I think Kinnear has said this to you on, on the podcast before and, and has discussed it with us also, that they needed to get through two years of Premier League football because those are the two years where you're most likely to get relegated again. I mean, it's not an exact science. There are plenty of clubs who've gone down after that point. But I think to avoid the pitfall of diving in quickly, getting yourself a stadium that's got a 60,000 capacity and then in you know no time at all, find yourself back playing championship clubs who are not even going to remotely fill the, the away end. But he said this is probably the moment now to move forward with that and to push on. And he did make it sound as if they were making progress. Without wishing to sound ungrateful, if it's about 100 million quid, that doesn't get you a right lot, does it? That gets you a main stand, does it? Oh, he talked about the West Stand. Yeah, it was the West Stand he was talking about. Rather than the cop, um, the cop as well. Because well, when we spoke to Kinnear last year, and we'll get more clarity on this hopefully when I speak to him on Friday morning, because he was talking about, did they do the West Stand first and then did they move round to the to the cop? To the and, he, and, and he spoke about it being the whole stadium. Well, they, they wanted to do the North as well. Last time I spoke to him, he said it would be the West and the North. The South is difficult because of the road behind it but it wouldn't have precluded them from making the stadium into a bit of a bowl or, you know, connecting the whole thing up. And certainly you could redo the South Stand in a way that, that would make it, I was going to say it would make it better than well, it I was going to say, I, Kinnear, I Kinnear, stand. Kinnear explicitly said last year they would take down the South Stand and rebuild something. Uh, yeah, um, because what else can you do with it? It's got the, the boxes at the back of it, yeah. um, which are no real use to, to anybody. That is a stand you will miss big time when that goes. You know, it'll never never quite be the same as it is now, um, I think it's become the best stand in, in the stadium over time. No, you upset um, the cop now. You well, no, no, no offence to anybody, but you know, it, it is, um, it, when I first started covering the club, there were quite often away fans in that end. And then, you know, as, as time went on um, and they, they put Leeds fans in there, it would quite often be half full, you know, half empty, depending on your point of view, but it's completely transformed, isn't it, over the last sort of four or five years. But yeah, no, the, the whole thing would look completely different. Uh, and, Rajasani can see that it is old, the ground, and it does need upgraded and it does need to need to change. But it's certainly the West Stand that he was talking about with us. And you're right, you can spend a hell of a lot of money on a stadium without getting the whole thing completely revamped. You need a, you need big amounts of cash to do it. And was the time frame put on that? He said it would take about two or three years to get the, the total thing completed. But obviously they need to get to the point of having planning permission and, and everything else. So it will depend very much on how quickly quickly it moves because there is a Premier League rule isn't there about how long you're allowed to have a development go on for it's not allowed to go over two, more than like one full season I believe something like that there is although it's not that you don't get dispensation sometimes for, for Premier League rules I was asking about the dugouts this year because obviously the dugouts haven't changed and for ages we've been expecting it to be racing seats and apparently from what I was told the dugouts are now no longer a stipulation you don't have the same pressure um, from the Premier League in order to do that but I, th- I think I mean, regardless of Premier League rules, there is not a club in the country who would want to be without a main stand for any length of time because what do you do? And, you know, that is even more people who can't get in the ground. It's even more revenue that you have to that you have to give up. So, yeah, time is of the essence for everybody. In terms of ambition and goal, I would like to see some good football, have fun, enjoy. I think this season should be a season of enjoy. The first season we were surprised. Uh, but we didn't enjoy much because there was no fans in the stadium, it was COVID and, and uh, last season was a very difficult season. This year we need enjoyment. <laughs> well, thanks for that insight, Phil. If you want to get across to the uh, the podcast um, and listen to it, it's on the um, athletic channels, isn't it? And read the article on the website as well. Just returning to all those anxieties that were shared in part one there. There's still plenty of time to go, isn't there? Um, both, I'm, wor- I'm worried about you, Daniel. Both, both <laughs> your, your, your anxiety is, um, is concerning me. I was going to say both. I'm actually quite optimistic, Phil, to be honest. <laughs> I, 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 I do think this season will probably be relatively comfortable. But like you said, not, nothing's off the table at the minute, is it? So we don't quite know. But you are never more optimistic than you are at this point. And I was just going to say... Well, you see, when I went to see Radrazani, he was looking incredibly relaxed. And it's funny to look at the body language and you know the demeanour of players and coaches and, and owners in a week like this when you don't kind of have results on your case in comparison to you know those dark days of February, March, 
April when people are very much on your case <laughs> and, you know, everyone looks like they've got got hunters coming after yes, them. Yes, this this is the week for executives to do interviews, isn't it? If ever it, there was a week in the calendar. It is, and, and it's for everybody one. to make bold predictions, which, um, you know, do not have anything behind them at the moment that you can, you can throw at them. Uh, yeah, but what I was going to say was, there's still a long way to go in the window, so maybe they are just being picky and want to make sure they get the right person for their money. And the season won't be set in stone just with what happens against Wolves. I think, as Marsh said, he's glad um, that we're at home first. We need a good start. And that's what I see out of this one. We need a performance, don't we? I think that's why um, the Calgary game felt kind of significant, even though we don't want to read too much into it because it's only pre-season and, you know, they didn't look like the greatest team in the world. But It was a bit of football foreplay, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think I, like, I'm, I'm going into this season quite excited in the sense that I don't know what to expect. And I think that's... That's in, exciting in itself, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in having that curiosity rather than expectation is really good. But I think given the club are explicitly saying we're targeting 10 to 14, if you know that's not the sexiest. So what we do need is fun days at Ellen Road. And Sunday was one of those where we got to see six goals and new signings. And I think the new signing is going to play a massive part. Like you looked at um, Palace last season and there was like a good vibe around Palace, even though actually it was a pretty average season. But I think the fact that they had new players a new manager doing all right, it makes a massive difference to the atmosphere. And I think at Wolves, the first home game of the season, first game of the season, a good result there could just make things feel so much more positive. Yeah, and I think the lifting of the pressure, you could sense that mm. against Cagliari. It was so nice to be in there on a warm summer's evening in a t-shirt thinking, oh God, it was awful last time I was in here. You know, it was like, it was shackles off, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought that in the second half, it was like having a having a kickabout. And you're right; it probably was good for people just to have a, a bit of that because once the season starts, I think this is particularly true at Leeds, and mainly because Leeds have been an EFL club for so long. Like every season, it was don't get me wrong; there were seasons where Leeds were much closer to relegation in, in the Championship than they should have been, but not too many. You know, it tended to be like that fifteenth place finish, didn't it? But every season, it was either you're in the mix for the playoffs or you you thoroughly thoroughly disgruntled it's slightly different in the Premier League in that you can finish mid-table and actually be quite kind of happy with it and and content like the, you know the ninth finish ninth place finish on the Bielsa everybody was rightly delighted with finishing ninth in the championship was just that grimness of another year of of nothing and because of that Leeds have never had many years many seasons many months or even weeks where there's just nothing riding on anything and everybody can sit back and it go, was, oh, it, was, it was 15th in the championship that was the proper grind, Phil. Oh, absolutely. Especially because it felt as if, you know, it was like a magnet, wasn't it? As soon as March came, it's like, here we go again. It's yeah, ninth, just sucking. Ninth yeah, in the sucking. championship, you've got a, a sniff of the playoffs there. But 15th was our natural home for a few seasons. Yeah, no, it's it? true. Yeah, ninth, yeah. Was, ninth was kind of like nosebleed um, territory. <laughs> but but I, I remember expressly in that Bielsa season in the Premier League, the weird feeling of February, March, April, May thinking the miles off relegation here, they're not going to get sucked in. They probably get a decent chance of finishing top half. They probably won't make Europe, but it's all, it's all just um, low risk, isn't it? Like, I don't mean the football, but the, the season, the results, there was no, no jeopardy there at all. It's kind of rare that leads that. And that's why it was nice in the second half on Sunday. You could sit back and go, this is enjoyable. This is really good. Um, without anything riding on it at all, it didn't really matter. It was, um, it was kind of just, Good for the soul seeing a few goals flying in. I think Wolves is probably a really good gauge for what this team are made of and how it's coming together. If, if it had been City coming on Saturday with Haaland, um, and let's be honest, it would have been Sunday, wouldn't it? Or you know, Saturday lunchtime or whatever. It, it would have been it would have been a broadcast slot. If they come with Haaland and he'd scored three goals and they'd won 4-0 or something else, you would say... Here we go again. Well, well you would say... well. That's City, isn't it? So what do we really read into any of this? And yes, you could pick apart the performance and so on, but you would you would still be saying they're going to be 30, 40 points away. That's that's just them, you know. Um, Will's totally different. Um, they've signed one player this summer, Nathan Collins from Burnley, which I'm not saying is bad bad signing that, by the way, but they, they've spent £20 million on him. That That is it. They're trying to get forward at the minute because um, Jimenez is injured, won't be available for the weekend. I'm not sure what to expect of them. I'm not sure if you could really predict a big season coming from Wolves. And on that basis, at home, this is a game that Leeds should be getting into in a big way. And I think this would be a game, just as a starting point, I mean, it's going to need some patience this anyway, but as a starting point, you can come away from Saturday, I think, with you know reasonably being able to say, how did this team match up 
um, and how we expect them to match up. I, I think they, sh- they, they should be able to have a go at Wolves. I've got to admit, I'm so emotionally fickle as well as a football fan because <laughs> it's just because it's the Thursday before the season starts and I'm I'm worried there's just a little bit of creeping anxiety about them not moving in the transfer market. However, you, if, however you're going to predict a victory. However, <laughs> if, if we'd signed a striker this week or a left back, I'd be going into this riding the crest of a wave thinking, oh, I can't wait for the new season. I can't wait for the new season. It's just my opinion today has just been coloured very slightly by thinking, please move in the transfer market, please move. But if we beat Wolves as well, I'll be absolutely bouncing and I can't wait to get back in there. I think the atmosphere is going to be brilliant as well. I don't think that would necessarily have made a massive difference to the Wolves game, but I think it definitely makes a difference to the season, the recruitment, what you're talking about. I think and the, I know the, that bigger, as well. the bigger picture. It's, yeah. it's just that yeah. you know, I'm just but, tapping into my inner child. That's all. But, you know? but I'm, I'm absolutely with you. Somebody said to me the other day, actually, this summer has been so short that it kind of feels like we should be going to Geisley this weekend you know, yeah, for like, yeah. like a, a mixture of under 18s and, and first teamers but at the same time I was definitely starting to get that feeling during the Calgary game of I can't wait until this actually matters you know I, I think part of that is because for ages now really since Marsh came in the discussion has been is this going to work you know is it going to work how's it going to go and it's it's not hypothetical as such because you can see what he's done already you can see who he's signed so you can take a view on those players but it is slightly hypothetical until you get into the hardcore aspect of competitive Premier League games and you get something proper to gauge the squad on. No, you're absolutely right. And just going back to what we were saying about Bielsa when he left us, we've essentially been in a kind of a, a holding pattern, almost purgatory since the back end of February, haven't we? It's, it's a long old, long old stint. It's been, you know, five and a half months of wondering, well, what's going to go on? What was that mean next? And Rob's right, there needs to be a bit of magic in the football. You know, if, if as you said, if you finish in 14th, you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, aren't you? You're going to have weekends that annoy you intensely, you're going to have weekends that delight you and, and are great. But there does need to be entertainment in it. I think I think the crowd at Ellen Road and, and Leeds, as a fan base generally, have been have been kind of taught now to expect good football and, and to be used to watching football that appeals to them and, and pleases them. And this is why the post-Bielsa era, the fans are always in, called Bielsa's widows, because it's so entertaining, even to the point where it probably costs him his job, the way that he flogs the players and it's the all-out attack. And yet it's so alluring as a, as a concept, isn't it, to watch that, to think we're just we're going to go for it in every single game. That's very such a seductive idea, isn't it? So it is really, really hard to follow. So I think you have to be fair in accepting that you can't expect Bielsa's football from Marsh, but you can still expect Marsh to deliver football that is pleasing on the eye. And, we, and do you know what? We saw a bit of that against Calgary. My yeah. concern was there was no real plan in the final 12 games of the season before. Like in possession, it didn't look like we knew what we were doing. Against Calgary, I thought, ah, I, I see it now. And I think, I mean, talking about um, you know the excitement and the, the sprinkling of magic, I think Rock has got just a little bit of that. He's just got that little bit of quality. You can see it in in Aronson as well. And then there's other things like, even things like Christensen being a bit of a, a cult icon fi- type figure, you know? Yeah. Just little things like for us to latch onto emotionally as well. Yeah, Rocker fell into that category we, when we discussed it after he signed of 10 million quid, ex-Espanol, being at Bayern Munich, you know, kind of what's the worst that can happen with that? I think the same with Christensen. But Aronson... Sunday was definitely the first time where it really, really came out of him. And how well that's going to transfer to higher standard of opposition is difficult to say. But in fairness to him, he has played in the Champions League with Salzburg. It's not as if it was all, you know, parochial domestic football over there. He does he, look... He, he passes like a Champions League footballer. And also, he, he's very happy with the ball at his feet. He glides with it. He's happy to be direct and to, you know, to run. He's not anxious about um, about taking risks or anything else. And that pass to, to Bamford was an absolute beauty. You know, that that's... And that is exactly what they're going to have to do all season because it is going to be pretty central. There is going to be a lot of ball going through the middle. Uh, I, I did a season preview on Wednesday and I sort of said on reflection, I think he is he has the potential to be the best signing but actually might be as important as any of the other signings because it's got to work in that zone behind Bamford. There's got to be chances for him if he's going to score. But um, I thought it was good, you know, good signs in Adams. And I think the energy that he brings, does he help Rodrigo maybe a little bit who's not quite as mobile? Well, that um, that goal, the the Aronson pass to Bamford and, and his finish felt almost like a, a cleaning of the slate from last season because it was exactly what we were lacking last year. Some drive and invention from the middle of the park. and then, Someone to finish it. And then our nine, yeah, our number <laughs> nine who's just got in the England team yeah. and then has been injured for the year. And it looked to Bamford as well, it looked like he, it gave him like a lift off his shoulders because previously in pre-season, he, he, he's obviously dealing with this injury and recovering from that still. And, he, you know, he, he looked rusty and then, you saw him score that. And we know with Bamford as well that once he gets a goal, 
he, you know, he, when he's not scoring, he can look like he's got the weight of the world on, on his shoulders. But once he gets a goal, it's like muscle memory. You isn't see it? Yeah, that yeah. lift on him physically. I think Harrison can be a bit like that as well, and, and he played well again at the weekend. So, yeah, you'll you'll also notice with Bamford that they've been really careful with him right the way through the summer. Kept him out of certain games, held him back a little bit in in others. But ninety minutes on Sunday, Marsh said he doesn't think he's still quite at one hundred percent Bamford, but he can't be too far off. And it does feel as if, without me wanting to to tempt fate in the way that I always do, it does feel Idiot. as if they've just about <laughs> managed this right to yeah. get him, you know, ready to to start. And it helps with the five subs as well, doesn't it? Because if you need to give him forty five, you, know, you put yourself in a position where you know, Touchwood, we get in front in the first half, three goals in front at half time. <laughs> And Bamford scored two, and you go, oh, we'll take him off now, and we'll manage his minutes, let's put Joffe on to cause him more trouble. And, I mean, the other other bits have come together as well. Marsh has obviously got his assistant, um, Renny Maric. I don't know if you spoke about this last week. I must confess, I didn't listen to the podcast while I was on Crush's Coaster. Or... It's for the best after some of the things we were saying about <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's a bit like when Michael goes away on holiday and we dig him out for his cleaning, <laughs> for his cleaning products. Um, but, you know... Managed very well thought of in Germany. Young, young guy. Much younger than me. Um, but has been at Mönchengladbach, been at, at Dortmund. How old is he? Um, he's 29. So is that the same age as you, Rob? A year older. So this time next year, I might be lead assistant manager. Would you trust yourself with your own life experience? Well, I mean, his, his background is he was a, a blogger to start with. So, I mean, I think he was blogging about very different things to me. He um, there is an article on our site about the half spaces, you know, that the Guardiola so into that he wrote with um, John Muller, one of our um, uh, one of our analysts, uh, which is really really good read. But they looked at a few people. I mean, Chris Armas, they were dead keen on who'd been at Manchester United. The sad thing with Armas is that a few, you know, I haven't spoken to him directly, but a few people who know him say that he found it pretty hard. The I don't know whether you could say anti-American sentiment at Manchester United, but I think there were stories about you know players joking about him being Ted Lasso. I was going to say so he, on, he got it first, didn't he? He did, yeah. and and I think he found that pretty hard. And I don't know whether it appealed to him. It certainly didn't sound like it appealed to him enough to carry on working in in the Premier League. There was a bit of talk about Michael Appleton as well, but Appleton went to to Blackpool. Um, Maric looks like a, a really good appointment. I think that's that's pretty pretty intriguing. So yeah, they they feel like. You know, with with the exception of those couple of areas that we've spoken about, they feel like they've they've done a fair amount of what needed to be done. But, but we're getting there as well. It feels like we're getting there as well. I want to say that I am I'm dead I'm dead excited about being back at the weekend. I really am looking forward to it. Like you, I kind of just got that. It just wetted my appetite. Yeah, come on, let's yeah, let's get into this. Yeah, do you want some away kit chat? I was going to say we've made it nearly an hour into this show without even talking about that, have we? Let's let's save that for the end and, and mention just the midfield situation because Lewis Bate has gone on loan to Oxford. He has, yes. Various options, but Oxford was the, was the one footballing-wise that he felt suited him. Yes, um, there are a couple of options abroad for him as well, um, but he'll play a lot at Oxford. There's no permanent option in it and he can be recalled in January if um, if Leeds need him. That was one of the things they were they were pretty definite on, that they needed to have that fallback in case they... They did need him. It's unfortunate for Bate, really, because he is still young, so he's got plenty of time. But obviously, it was sold to him, the move from Chelsea, as a better pathway at Leeds than than at Chelsea. And obviously, he hasn't played a huge amount. He did kind of break through for a little period uh, last season, but he's peripheral to the extent that Leeds are happy to let him go, and I don't think there was much chance of him getting, getting a look in. But they're not very much at pains to say that he will still be part of the part of the plans. I think it will just be interesting now to see how it works out for him longer term. You've just got to go and prove yourself, haven't you? Ultimately? Yeah, and I think you will. I think you will. I think that'll be a great signing for Oxford, that. Uh, Mateus Click as well, it's the intriguing one. It felt like the writing was a little bit on the wall after after Cagliari, um, maybe on his way out looking for a, some first-team football ahead of the World Cup. Yes and no, maybe partly more because of the questions we asked about him, you know, the, the I mean, which I think is a fair question of. He isn't at the, the forefront of the players who are going to start, I don't think at all. I mean, I wouldn't expect Cleek to be in the, the starting lineup on Saturday. And even the question, I suppose, of whether he's going to be one of Marsh's go-to players off the bench more often than not. And if he isn't, the World Cup is coming up. He wants to go with Poland. He's also at an age where, you know, he needs to get as much football as he can, you know, given that he's not going to not going to last forever. There's a bit of talk in Holland about Utrecht being interested. They were, um, they're obviously a club he's, he's played for before. Um Keep it. I would keep an eye on that one. Marsh said to us, you know, I don't particularly want him to go. He's not somebody I want to want to get rid of. I like having him around. But he did say, I was going to say it feels like there's a but there. There's always a no, but. There, the, there definitely yeah. was the caveat of I understand that he wants to go to the World Cup with Poland, um, and I think it's similar to similar to what you've heard him say previously. You know, a little bit about Rafinha. That thing of I, I don't want to lose him, but I'm fairly realistic that it's it might happen. The decision there is going to have to be a. Is there a club that that Cleek wants to go to? Is it 
prudent to lose a midfielder or, or do you do you actually need him? But ultimately, it, it does feel like he, he is becoming more and more peripheral. The away kit then. It's great, isn't it? Isn't it awful? <laughs> the, the blue cheese yeah, comparison the, I thought the, was a... Yeah, the Stilton was kit. Was a, a very, very good one. The people might have seen it, but we wrote a couple of weeks ago about the kit because clearly the kit is delayed. And, and while you could all pile on en masse onto the website this morning to have a go at the away kit, the home kit still isn't there to, to buy. And what... Uh, Leeds got this, had the statement from Adidas a while back saying, you know, it's kind of our fault as a company, production delays and everything else. But what's become quite obvious is that this is a problem for quite a few clubs in England who are short of kit or kit has been late in arriving. And the, there are reasons for it. Um, the main one being that a lot of the kit is produced in the Far East uh, and the production centres have been closed for a long, long time by, by COVID. And you always have to remember how far in advance clubs design or agree to designs of, of kits um, they tend to head over for b- b- begin production kind of November December time for the following season and um, they tend to get sort of finalised this time of year you know the, there will be discussions going on at the moment about what is the kit going to look like for 23-24 even though we've not started 22-23 so the shutdown of project, uh, production centres and there was one I think in Vietnam in particular that was closed for three months that has affected Adidas and Leeds directly it means that there has you know, has been obviously knock-on effect to kit arriving on time. From people we spoke to in the game, it seems obvious as well that there's a bit of disquiet that some manufacturers seem to prioritise, given that they've got problems with production, seem to prioritise the production of other sportswear products on the basis that people will buy kits irrespective of when you chuck them in the shops um, or, or put them online. You know, almost that taking for granted the market out there because people have that inherent loyalty and, and will spend their money on it. But I think... Across the board, you'll probably see some compensation claims for this because clubs generally like to have the home kit out in July so that people pick them up before the start of the season, take them away on holiday, whatever else. Like to have the away kit out round about the first weekend of the season so that people who have already bought the home kit come to the first home game and think, do you know what, I like the away kit, I'm going to buy that as well. They sold 300,000 shirts last season, Leeds, which is a massive amount, you know, compared to other clubs similar to them. It's easily top six in the Premier League. So I don't doubt that they will sell a huge number of the away kit either irrespective of what people think of it I mean I won't be buying one for myself but I did buy one this morning in the uh, in the pre-sale for my son whose birthday is next week because he described it as sick is that that's good sick that's yeah. good yep good yeah. sick yeah good sick <laughs> as all the youth listening will will know <laughs> mm-hmm. yes yes that seems like a, a glowing glowing endorsement yeah. if, uh, and, and presumably not a description of the uh, of the shirt itself <laughs> of course not no um, but we're away on holiday next week actually so we'll be here back for the Monday show um, when Michael returns but I'm off next weekend for the summer to miss the Southampton game and the podcast um, through the week but he wants the shirt to take it to Greece and wear it um, on the beach so. oh, I'm disappointed that you didn't want to get like a you know a sort of fat dad's football top in the way that that one would fit me in and walk around or, or point, otherwise pointing known- and shouting in English yeah. <laughs> is otherwise known a football top <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, we will wrap it up there at the Phil Hayes Show. You can say hi on Twitter, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod to sign up to read that interview with Andrea Ratrizzani. We'll speak to you on Monday. Bye bye. The Phil Hayes Show.